1: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist, and this is Money Talks. Coming up this week, how cheese tells us all we need to know about the economics of trade.
2: It might be difficult to export your cheese abroad because the French just don't like your cheese that has fruity bits in it. The
1: French would be horrified at such a thought. And how giving your company a Chinese name is a tricky business. Microsoft, for example, was the characters meaning tiny and
3: soft, but those names don't particularly capture the Chinese imagination.
1: But first, corporations have always meddled in the politics of the day. But in our increasingly polarised society, are big businesses becoming more political than ever? It's hard, for example, for business not to take a view on President Trump's threats to quit the North American Free Trade Agreement, or in this country, on how Brexit is managed. Charlotte Howard is our consumer goods and marketing correspondent based in New York and has been looking into this for this week's issue. Hello, Charlotte. Hi, Simon. First, do you accept the proposition? Do you think companies generally are becoming politically more active?
0: I do, because it's increasingly hard for companies to stay neutral on a whole number of issues. And that's for a few reasons. One is that they face a range of pressures from different constituencies in some cases it's institutional investors like pension boards that want to invest according to certain criteria and are judging companies on their social and environmental work for example And then you increasingly have also pressure from staff and consumers. So before, if a consumer was unhappy with a company, they might just quietly not buy the product. Now they can have a whole ruckus online. So you saw just in the past month, um, Keurig, which makes coffee machines, withdrew advertising from a conservative show. Then there were thousands of videos posted online of people bashing their Keurig machines in (laughs) protest. That kind of thing just didn't happen before social media and then lastly you have staff which is who are also becoming more vocal in expressing their satisfaction or dissatisfaction with their ceos and companies increasingly feel like they need to have a position on things that might not directly affect their bottom line whether it's gun control immigration climate change and so forth so it's just very very hard for companies to stay out of these debates
1: how much of this do you think has to do with the election last year of Donald Trump? After all, he's a businessman himself. He intervenes very directly in a lot of corporate affairs with, through his Twitter account. Is, how much is he driving this?
0: He's really thrust what might have been an internal debate into the national spotlight. So you had, prior to Trump's election, um, you had many companies doing things that they would've thought were sort of internal matters, whether it had to do with building up supposed sets of corporate values or expanding their corporate social responsibility programs. And those values and those programs often had a democratic bent to them because of where companies are based. The the biggest companies in America are disproportionately based in metropolitan areas and in states that voted for Hillary Clinton. And so you had companies in their orientation moving a bit to the left internally, and then you had this concurrent thing with populism rising and electing Donald Trump. And those those two forces have really collided in the past year. So in the start of Donald Trump's presidency, you saw companies doing what they've always done, which is being a bit sycophantic and coming to the White House when Trump asked them to, serving on his business councils and so forth. And then Trump really started to do things that directly contradicted these values that companies supposedly hold dear whether it's banning immigration from muslim majority countries which prompted very stern reactions particularly from companies in silicon valley whether it was withdrawing from the Paris Climate Agreement, which prompted some chief executives to step down from his business councils. And of course, most notably, when he seemed to equivocate on racist protesters in Charlottesville, uh, his business councils just disbanded altogether. And so Donald Trump continues to do these things that are just impossible for executives to ignore. And so that's what has really brought this out in the past year. And
1: I suppose the really difficult question to answer is how much do you think companies are acting because of what they believe in or because their staff believe in that? And how much are they acting in what they perceive as the long term interest of their shareholders? Are they doing this just because it's good for business in the long run?
0: I think it's very hard to piece those two things apart. But I would say that underpinning this is pragmatism. That it may seem to be a moral stance to object to um, Donald Trump's plans for the dreamers, et cetera, But it really does come down to how companies are relating to their staff and what their staff are demanding of them. And if it becomes harder to recruit a talented engineer because a company is seen as not being um, forward looking on a particular social issue, then, then that damages the company in the long term.
1: Not just their staff, presumably also their their customers. I I suppose that in the age of social media, the efficacy of a consumer boycott can be that much stronger.
0: It's really interesting on consumer boycotts. So the, the, the thing about a consumer boycott is that it doesn't seem to have that big an effect on sales, but companies really want to avoid them anyway because of the reputational damage among institutional investors and among staff. So Starbucks, for example, had a position in the wake of one of Mr. Trump's announcements that they would uh, start hiring more refugees, which prompted calls among conservative activists to boycott Starbucks. Now, that doesn't seem to have had any effect on Starbucks sales of mochaccinos or lattes or whatever it is that um, Starbucks happens to be selling these days.
1: And, and looked at it at the other end. I mean, last week on Money Talks, we were talking about sustainably responsible investing. How much are Investors wanting to be ethical, putting pressures on the companies in which they hold shares.
0: Pressure from investors absolutely is increasing and it complements these other pressures from staff and from consumers for companies to have a position. So that uh, makes these forces feel even more profound.
1: Sean Howard, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, what
1: are your views? Should companies make political stands even at the expense of shareholder profits? Please get in touch via Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radioateconomist.com. Now, Money Talks picks up a culinary theme. Last week we talked about herrings, and this week we're turning to another product we're particularly partial to: cheese. Sameer Keynes, our economics correspondent, says this can tell us everything we need to know about the economics of trade. Hello, Sameer. Hello. How come?
2: Well, I should say almost everything, uh, because clearly cheese is one commodity. It's not exactly a very high-tech commodity, um, but it's still really, really interesting. So let's go through the economics lesson. What are the different barriers to trade in cheese? Well, first of all, you have different tastes. It might be difficult to export your cheese abroad because the French just don't like your cheese that has fruity bits in it. The French would be horrified at such a thought. Um, second of all, just the distance is, is a barrier. If you think about cheese, it's perishable. So the further away, you know, the less time you have on the shelf before it goes off. The other really important barrier to trade is tariffs. Uh, cheese is one of the most protected goods in the world. So uh, just to take an example, the European Union applies an average duty of 34% on its dairy products. Uh, to the rest of the world compared to 5.1% for kind of all its products. America, um, for dairy products, it's 17.5% compared to 3.5% for everything else. Right, so there are these really big differences. But I think... The reason why I've really focused on cheese is because actually people think about tariffs as these government imposed barriers to trade, but really there are other things that impose even bigger barriers to trade. And I'm talking about regulations, I'm talking about health standards, labeling. For example, the South African government imposes different standards, so your labels have to be in bigger font than in other countries. That means there's less space for other things. You have to produce different labels. It's just a massive faff. For America, you have to fill in a water forms as thick as your thumb. It's really, really onerous paperwork. And that means that some cheese producers just can't be bothered to go through the hassle. It's just too expensive, particularly if you're a smaller producer.
1: So... Uh Speciality cheeses then are particularly badly affected.
2: Well, yeah. So so if you're producing a mass-processed cheese in vast, vast commodities, then the paperwork as a fraction of your costs will just be smaller. And so you'll be more likely to, to get it in. If you're a Stilton producer, a Roquefort producer, and you're much smaller, then maybe uh, you you don't bother as much. And, and particularly in Europe, you have a situation where you have lots and lots of smaller... Uh, cheese makers, which is partly as a result of the, the government support they've been given.
1: But you, you hinted another issue too there, don't you? I mean, Stilton is called Stilton, Roquefort is called Roquefort after places, but they're also very familiar types of cheeses. Can they be made outside their home place?
2: Exactly. So this is the heart of the other huge, huge fight that's going on in the world over cheese. So at the heart of this is this philosophical question. What is Roquefort? What is Stilton? Does it matter where it was produced? The Europeans say yes, definitely. Um, So if you're a Roquefort producer, you can only produce it in these particular regions of France. If you're a Stilton producer, you can only produce it in Derbyshire, Leicestershire and Nottinghamshire. So America doesn't really care much about Stilton because it doesn't really produce much Stilton of its own. But take something like feta, where it, it sees feta as just this generic cheese that lots of American producers produce, the Europeans start saying, no, we want to protect our cheeses in a trade deal, um, then the Americans are going to fight pretty hard. And this was one of the central areas of dispute between the European Union and America when they were trying to agree the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership,
1: or TTIP. As you talk, I'm beginning to see future money talks expanding wonderfully into Palmer Ham uh, champagne, Melton Mowbray pies. I mean, it's the same problem with lots of other foods, isn't it?
2: Exactly. And I think for journalistic purposes, I'll probably
1: have to try them all. Thank you, Samir. Don't eat too much. Finally, what's in a name? Western companies trying to get into Chinese markets are paying particular attention to their name. It appears sometimes the literal translation can attract ridicule. Rachana Shambhog, our business correspondent, has been investigating. Hello, Rachana. Hi, Simon. So what are companies doing with their names when it comes to rebranding for China?
3: Um, well, about 20 years ago, Simon, the trend used to be to um, just transliterate um, the foreign brand name. So, for example, McDonald's was Mai Dang Lao, which is a very rough transliteration. Um, then the trend sort of moved towards um, straightforward translations of names. So Microsoft, for example, was uh, the characters meaning tiny and soft. But those names don't particularly capture the Chinese imagination. So there's been a a crop of um, branding consultants that have um, come up. And what they do is they offer a service where they sit down with the company and help them think about the image that they want to project in China. And the result is names that actually have a meaning in China and that can resonate with the public imagination. So early examples include Coca-Cola, which is Coca-Cola, but which means um, tasty fun or delicious happiness. Um, BMW is Baumar Treasure Horse, for example. And the branding consultancy that I've been speaking to has also helped companies like Booking.com and Airbnb and LinkedIn with their names. And again, they're not straightforward translations or transliterations. So sometimes
1: these names might have nothing to do with the English name at all.
3: That's right. I mean, take BMW, for example, Treasure Horse, you know, is much more evocative than, um, than BMW itself. Um, uh, booking.com, I think, it, it, the Chinese name means something like um, welcome with love.
1: And other problems that some names have already been taken...
3: There have been problems in the past. Um, The issue is that um, the Chinese are very energetic trademarkers. So often um, when a Western company comes into the Chinese market, they might find that their Chinese name has already been snapped up. And that might have happened um, either because its own distributors have have, um, established the trademark or um, competitors might have done it to sort of block the company from entering or perhaps even trademark squatters who will buy up the trademark and then try and sell it on to the company. So we've seen, for example, um, Pfizer, when it came into China, found that its um, Chinese name for Viagra had already been snapped up by a local um, pharmaceuticals company. And it went through years of litigation trying to win the name back, but without any success.
1: Thanks very much, Rachana Shamborg. I, I can only say I, I'm sorry these branding consultants weren't around when I was a student in China many years ago. Then I was allocated a name Lang Shimang, which made many Chinese snigger a bit because it sounded like wolf western mongolian not very good that's all for this episode of money talks to read about everything discussed in the show pick up the forthcoming issue of the economist or do visit our website at economist.com and of course please take a moment to rate us on itunes i'm simon long and in london this is the economist